You're listening to our Great Divorce Podcast, where we walk through one of C.S. Lewis's greatest works and discuss practically what it means for our lives today. This podcast was produced by St. Andrew in Plano, Texas. Theme song you're hearing is Shadow to Sunlight by Micah Peacock. For more information about our church and the different ministries we provide, or to find other podcasts we have produced, we invite you to visit standrewumc.org or join us for worship on Sunday mornings. All right, so Forrest, we are on chapter three of The Great Divorce. How do you feel about it so far? Worn out. Are you? Yeah, this book is intense. Confusing. Interesting. Confusing. I hope hope our (laughs) listeners are less worn out than you, and we're keeping this moving because we're now uh, approaching the different world. So we spent chapter one and chapter two in Greytown, and now we get to see the alternative. I will tell you the second word of the third chapter is one that we're going to come back to, but you don't understand when you first read this. And so I want to highlight it for a second. It says, a cliff had loomed up ahead. I know that seems like a really weird thing to like start this conversation with, but this is how detailed Lewis is in his writing, is he is setting you up. So understand that the bus has come out of Greytown and they're coming out through a cliff. And that's going to become a way more important detail in a handful of chapters than you can ever imagine. So the bus comes out of Greytown and they come out on top of a cliff and it is just a different world. So Greytown is described as just gray, nasty, horrible, smoky almost, like just this really nasty place where they sell the works of Aristotle. Again, I love that. Lewis decides to critique Aristotle in this book, but regardless. You know when you, you're leaving a town that's like in an airplane that's like rainy and cloudy and and then there's a moment you break through the clouds and you realize, oh, the whole world isn't rainy and cloudy. Like up here, it's just fine. Like it's actually, I feel like that's what we just did. There is another reality out there. I agree. So the cliff is pretty cool, but the people on the bus haven't changed. They're in a different place. But it says they flew up over it and there was a level grassy country and there was a wide river. And then they were coming down, losing height now. So like an airplane coming into rest. And then suddenly they were at rest and everyone had jumped up. So even though they're in a pretty place, it says curses, taunts, blows of filth, of vituperation. I'm like, man, you got to get a source out there for this thing. A filth of vituperation came to my ears as my fellow passengers struggled to get out. You can take the people out of the place they're in, but you can't take the place they're in out of the people, right? I just had a funny thought that this reminds me of that kids book, The Magic School Bus. Where they like, <laughs> I wonder if The Magic School Bus yeah, got the idea inspired from by The this. Great Divorce. Miss Frizzle is the... Miss Frizzle is Jesus. I mean, that's, a, that's a great. Maybe. So here they are. And I want you to keep in mind, the people haven't changed, but the place has. That's a really important framework. They haven't changed physically and they haven't changed spiritually. And they get out and there is this unbelievable place that is just a different reality. 
So again, like just a handful of lines here that I think Lewis is really interesting. It says, I had the sense of being in a larger space, perhaps even in a larger sort of space than I'd ever known before, as if the sky were further off and the green plane wider than they could be on this little ball of earth. He's trying to get you to understand that some fundamental quality is different about this place than any other place you've ever been. But the first attention was caught by his fellow passengers who were still grouped around the bus. And they were all together, but they were different. Okay, so keep in mind, their attitudes are the same. They're still, you know, a filth of vituperance, vituperation, but they are now transparent. He says, now that they were in the light, they were transparent, fully transparent when they stood between me and it. By it, he means the bus. And they were, in fact, ghosts. Man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air. I have to say, Forrest, I think this is the moment where people stop reading the book. <laughs> well, you actually missed two lines that I thought were really cool on that okay, first shoot. part. It's when he talks about the place he was in made the solar system itself seem an indoor affair. I thought that was pretty cool. And then right after that, he says, this actually resonated with me. It, it gave me a feeling of freedom, but also of exposure and possibly danger which continued to accompany me through all that followed. So the rest of this book, like that sense of freedom, exposure, and danger is all kind of there. So again, this is in the place when you do that, that I think it's so much connected to C.S. Lewis's other writings. So if you're used to like the Chronicles of Narnia, like there's terror around Aslan, who's the Jesus character, and Aslan's a lion in the book. And so someone says, well, is he a tame lion? And they go, no, he's not tame, but he's good. Like there's an element of like when you're actually in front of God, like every time you see people in front of angels or God, it's like fear not. Like there is this awesome fear and terror and wonder and joy at being in this place. But, you know, being connected to God is vulnerable. Like there's so much of that that's wrapped yeah. into this. So let's get back to the stain. So let's get back to the <laughs> stain, which is humanity on this unbelievable place. And man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air. I think this is when people stop reading because they don't understand what Greytown was and why are these people ghosts? And then they go, I'm done. I can't. This is page 27. There's been no clarity about what's happening yet and they're done. But this element of the people being transparent is so cool and so crucial because there's such a fundamental difference. If you notice, I said they haven't changed, but the world around them has. So whenever... I read this, I was thinking a couple things. One is the next line about how it says that basically you could attend to them or ignore them at will as you do with the dirt on a window pane. I was thinking my wife, when we go on road trips, she hates bugs on the window because like she sees the bugs. They don't bother me that much because I, I like look past them, but it's like these two different perspectives on that. But I was also thinking about those, remember those pictures they had that were the weird patterns that if you stared at it long oh, enough. Oh, the 3D images. Yeah, I, I felt like that in my head played in somewhere in this too. That if you stare at it and look at it with a different perspective and long enough, put your nose up to it and pull it away and see it. I think that's what's so crucial about this is actually nothing has changed. Like you'll get to understand later that the people were always that transparent in gray town, but the world itself was so. It wasn't as bright. It wasn't as bright. And so you didn't see them in the same lens. Like nothing has actually shifted here except your perspective, except the attitude of the environment or the area in which you're in. I love that image of the kind of shriveled, smoky, transparent thing that's in front of them. 
uh, that's not nearly as solid as people think it is. Like in, when you're in Greytown, you think that all their pity and all their frustration and what they were owed was such a big deal. And now you understand their entire being is so insignificant, you could ignore it like you could bugs on a windshield. Here's exactly how Lewis says that. It says, the men were as they always had been, as all the men I had known had been perhaps. It was the light, the grass, the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. I think, Forrest, this is one of those things where when I think about my love for my wife, think about like the love that you have for your wife or your kids. And then you think about like the infatuation you had in high school for a girlfriend or for like something else. And you realize only in retrospect that that love was tiny by comparison. It wasn't that it was nothing, but it was when you have the real thing, everything else seems meager by comparison. I think that's the best way I can understand what this entire position is. It's a 50 year old person listening to a high school kid talk about a hard breakup. And it's not the hard breakup doesn't matter. It does matter. It's real to them, but it's a whole different perspective. That's right. The person that's love and lost eight times says they have a whole different perspective on what that is. I think it's awesome. I love this lens because it also helps us understand that heaven and God are way more real. Like if you take that to be true, which I fully do, it means that heaven and God are so much more real than we ever imagined. And that if we saw things the way God did, maybe we might see our own issues and our own stuff in the same way. Then we get to the place where we describe the nature of reality. And this goes back to the preface. So in the preface where he used the storyline of a guy who went back in the past and couldn't change the past because it was real and it already happened. And he, raindrops were and the like rain, bullets and raindrops were like bite bullets. into a sandwich. Yeah. That's right. That's where we get to heaven, where you start to realize maybe heaven is actually more solid, more real, and more pure than us, which means that we are so insignificant compared to it that we can't even mess with it. And so, moved by a sudden thought, I bit down and tried to pluck a daisy which was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged it till the sweat stood out of my forehead and I had lost most of the skin off my hands." There's like something so interesting. Like, what would it be like if we were in a world so real and we were so puny compared to it, we couldn't even pull out a daffodil? I think it's fascinating. I was actually thinking, this goes back to the time thing. It would take a little while to lose Moses' skin. Like, he struggled with this thing for a while. That's right. That's right. And then he actually thought what would happen when raindrops or whatever. And he goes, I'm in for it this time. Like, there was a, there's a fear in a world like that that you don't get in a normal world. So one person actually just bolts back to the bus. Like they see this more real world and rather than being curious about it, rather than trying to figure out about it or figure out what's available for them, this person darts immediately back to the bus and misses out on everything that you're about to see in the storyline. I do like the word golly in the paragraph before that. I golly, think, I'm in for it this time. Yeah, I think we need to bring that one back. I'll let you be the president of that committee, the bring back golly committee. The others remained uncertain. And this is one of my favorite lines where the big man, who we've already heard from before, says, Hi, mister, addressing the driver. When have we got to go back? And the driver says, You need never come back unless you want to. Stay as long as you please. That there's a choice offered here. A choice to go back to Greytown or remain in this unbelievable place. 
And I think that choice is one that we all have. I think Lewis is trying to get us to understand that's a choice that we have today. And it's one that many people don't even know that that choice is being offered to them in that moment. You think Napoleon has that choice in of this course. story? Like, so how does that work? Okay, so I do think, I mean, actually, in fact, later on, there's a description about what God has done. And so we'll talk about kind of God in this whole yeah. storyline. But you ought to understand that Napoleon, even 15,000 light years or 15,000 years of travel away from the bus. So if you were one of those people that walked the 15,000 and you saw Napoleon in there, what would you say to him? Well, I think if you're in Greytown, unless you're the driver, you have your own pettiness and you just mock <laughs> Napoleon, right? Like There's I think everyone- those, those people that went out there to see him probably had their own they issues. Were, they were there just to mock him yeah. and figure out what that is. I just think a lot of people feel like they're Napoleon, out on the edge yes. and too far away. They made too many bad decisions. They're like, I can't actually go back to the first bad decision and change it. So what do I do? That's this entire premise. Like the entire premise of this storyline is precisely that. And so every single conversation we're going to have is about that possibility. But primarily, it's the driver's statement that you don't have to stay where you are. If you're on a bad path you don't like, choose a different path. Don't keep going on. It's not actually the right thing to keep going on. You must, I mean, quoting his Shakespeare thing again, with backward mutters of dissevering power, make a different option. Repent. Choose something different. So one guy then walks up and seeing this whole brand new world, walks up and goes, uh, one of the quieter and more respectable ghosts had sidled up to me. There must be some mismanagement. What's the sense of allowing all that riffraff to float about here all day? Look at them. They're not enjoying it. They'd be far happier at home. They don't even know what to do. And the narrator responds, well, I don't know what to do. What does one do? <laughs> like, which I think is really funny. Yeah. And he goes, I'm going to be met. And so what you find is that every single one of these ghosts have someone coming to meet them. And then all of a sudden he sees very far away a range of mountains, steep forests, far withdrawing valleys, and even mountain cities perched on inaccessible summits. Again, this is one of those places where if you read the rest of Lewis, like in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis describes heaven as a mountain range where there is always further up and further in. And so here you have like this vision of heaven and enormous cities heading out in the distance. And then coming down from those mountains are people coming to meet us. Because they were bright, I saw them while they were still very distant. And I did not know that they were people at all. Mile after mile, they drew nearer. The earth shook under their tread as their strong feet sank into the wet turf. So imagine his time trying to pull out the daffodil compared with these unbelievably bright people who are so solid, so full that the turf actually moves underneath their feet when he can't even pull out a daffodil. And then there's a description of heaven. People have actually asked me a lot about what is heaven going to be like? Are we going to be naked? Are we going to be clothed? Like, what's it going to look like? <laughs> Lewis actually addresses it here, which I think is yeah. always fun because, you know. In the same way he did the guns and the knives. In the same way he did the guns and the knives. That's right. It says, some were naked, some robed, but the naked ones did not seem less adorned and the robes did not disguise and those who wore them the massive grandeur of muscle and the radiant smoothness of flesh. I've never heard of human and women described like C.S. Lewis does this one. Two of the ghosts then screamed and ran for the bus and the rest of us huddled closer to one another. And that's where the third chapter ends. It's this choice 
between solid or shriveled. I actually worked really hard to like that smoky, transparent, ghosty nature, I think is hard for us to understand. I think the way to understand it is they've made choices in their lives, all of us have in some ways, that have made themselves thinner, more smoky, more transparent, less solid, more shriveled. So when I was writing my book on solid souls, those solid people that are coming down from heaven, those are the people I'm trying to describe in heaven, the people we want to be like, who make decisions that lead towards heaven and not away. But the other people, the shriveled souls, the transparent ones, the ghost ones, those are the two choices. So when you think about heaven and hell, for you, for me, the choices are who do you want to be, the transparent people out of fear or the solid people for whom even heaven moves and the grass like bends when you just step on it. I also thought he talks about age, which everybody wonders like, okay, in heaven, am I like my 24 year old version of me or am I the, you know, like it's interesting the way he describes it, that none of them struck me as being of any particular age. It's kind of the same as he's doing like these things that we think are important, like that we measure things by. It's not even a big deal to them. And he says, one gets glimpses, even in our country, of that which is ageless, heavy thought in the face of an infant, and frolic childhood in that of a very old man. He just kind of mixes it all together. He's describing, I think, what, we, what God intended for us, right? Like this perfect world where everything is made right. Your question, Forrest, about what would you say to Napoleon and kind of the reality that we know that people that are listening are in a million different places. Right? Like there are a million different ways to choose hell. There are a million different ways to make bad choices. And yet every single one of us have made them. Like there's no pastor, no person who has not made those choices in life. But you said, what are we going to say to them? What do you say to someone who has made difficult choices? Or what do you say to yourself in those moments? That's what Lewis is setting up is a conversation between solid souls and the smoky, transparent, shriveled ghosts. And that's what the entire setup is for. And it took Lewis in this version of the book 30 pages to get to the setup for what I think he was trying to do. And that's why if you've been reading the book or you're listening to this podcast on The Great Divorce, it's so difficult to get through all of it, precisely because there's so much detail there. There's so much he's trying to get across about the nature of Greytown or the nature of the solid world that now he's finally set up the plate for what would you actually say? So what is God trying to say to you in this moment? Or what would you say to your friend, brother, sister, mother, father, child? That's the setup that we have here and why this book is so cool and powerful. But you're going to have to, you know, tune in the next episode to get the rest of that. So we'll sign off here. And I can't wait for the next episode when you get to like, when the setup is done and the conversation between the two gets going. Got no place, but I know just why I'm here. Lift me out of the waste, keep me steady in the face of.